Let's take a moment and pray together before we look at God's word from Philippians chapter 2. Lord, I don't know how many people in this room are feeling the same thing, but um, yeah, last night felt like a war was happening inside my soul. Um, waking up sometimes just in fear of doing the wrong thing as a pastor. And then waking up at other times just in awe of Christ and his glory. And uh, yeah, I feel like those dreams tell me that something significant is happening. And ask that, uh, that you would be with your people this morning and be with me so that um, fear would be dissolved and all of us would leave this place in awe of the glory that you have demonstrated through your son, Jesus. Lord, if we came here this morning not wanting to experience awe, not, not planning to be overwhelmed with someone else's goodness in such a way that we would want to lay everything else down and belong to them forever, then change our agenda and make that our desire. Show us Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. I was wondering if you ever feel like everything is working against you at the same time. If so, you are you're experiencing what the church in the city of Philippi was experiencing in the first century. Uh, there were outside opponents, people who claimed to be believers in Jesus, who actually were worshiping a different Savior. They used the name Jesus to describe that Savior, but the person they were talking about was all about power, never about weakness, all about glory, never about shame, all about boasting. And um, those leaders were coming to Philippi, and they were, they were preparing to take advantage of any, any cracks in the unity of that church any division, they were going to exploit it. And so another thing working against this church, not just these outside opponents, but, but they had a history of failure in, in the area of unity. As we go through the book of Philippians, we'll hear that. The Apostle Paul will have to tell people to stop arguing and fighting with each other. So there's this outside threat that's coming. There's this history of failure. And then on top of it all, they're, they're living in, in the midst of cultural pressures. Their city was a Roman colony in the Mediterranean in the first century. It was a culture that breathed honor and shame and kind of constant competition to show who's the most important. And so if they're going to cling to this crucified and resurrected Jesus, and if they're going to do that with unity, they're going to have to go against everything that their culture is pressuring them to do and to stand for and to believe and to value. And all of that wrapped up into one big ball is just working against the people who were first reading this letter. 
And somehow in the midst of all of that, one of the words that occurs more often than any other in this whole letter is the word joy and the verb form rejoice. Somehow when everything is working against you all at once, Jesus wants you to have joy. He wants you to have confidence that you aren't doomed to a spiral of division and failure and collapsing under the weight of cultural pressures. Jesus wants us to have that confidence, that joy, even when everything is against us. Let's hear that good news from Philippians today. Lauren, thank you. The scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lauren. I don't know if this is a pressing question for you on a daily basis, but how do you fatten two pigs in a hurry? You got two pigs and you want both of them to gain a lot of weight quickly because Christmas is coming. Um, how do you fatten two pigs in a hurry? Well, I mean, maybe theoretically you, you get two separate pig feeders so each of them can eat whenever they want to. And you buy twice as much food so that each, each one has as much as they need. And maybe you even create two separate pens to keep them in so neither one interferes with the other's eating. And, and they can both eat as much as they want. Maybe that's the way to go. Actually, it's not. Every farmer knows if you want to fatten two pigs in a hurry, you make one pen and buy a one-hole feeder, a feeder that's only got a hole in it big enough for one pig snout to fit at a time. You create competition between the two pigs. And you don't buy twice as much feed, you buy three or four times as much because now each pig is going to think the other is a threat. Each pig is going to think the other is a competitor. And when he gets to that hole and gets his nose in there, he's going to eat and eat and eat and eat. And when he's eating everything he needs, he's going to look over here and see the other one and go, I'm going to eat your food too. And you can watch this happen. I've, I've seen it happen. You know, it's kind of a you, you pig psychology. 
You get them to change from I get what I need to I win, you lose. And I'm no longer eating because I'm hungry. I'm eating because you're hungry. Lauren read this phrase in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. I don't know if you're looking at your Bible right now. I've got a version of the ESV, the translation that she read, that translates that same word. It's not a different translation, right? The same, the English Standard Version. Uh, The earlier version says, do nothing from rivalry. But there are editions of the ESV that, that say selfish ambition. Well, either one of those phrases would capture it, right? It's not just pigs who behave this way. It's human beings. Me first. I'm the important one. Life is not about me getting what I need. It's about me taking what you want too. Because you're a threat. You're a, you're a competitor. You're a, a rival. And so I have this ambition to show that I'm first, and it's centered on self. One of the challenges that we face in the world that we live in, because we live in it, is this reality. Selfish ambition makes real community nearly impossible. Right? When you you read the first four verses of this chapter, you hear about the, the, kinds, uh, the kind of community that, that we would like to be as followers of Jesus, a place where the encouragement we have in Christ is multiplied and overflows, where, where there is comfort because of love, where we know that we participate in the Holy Spirit together, and we have affection and sympathy for one another. And we do things like, verse 2 describes, We're striving to be of the same mind and and have the same kind of love for one another and to be in full agreement and, again, of one mind. That's the sort of real community we'd like to be part of. That's the sort of real community that every human being longs for, whether they realize it or not. But then comes verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more, than, more significant than yourselves. It is really hard to appreciate someone else. It's really hard to love someone else. It's hard to seek what is good for someone else if you see them as a threat, if you see them as the competition in a contest over who's most important then it's going to be really hard to do anything that truly comes out of love for them. You may even do something that looks kind, right? But if you're doing it because you want everyone else to see you do it so that they will say, hmm, you're the big pig, then it's not really coming out of love. It's still coming out of this place of competition to show who's the best, who's the greatest, who's the most important, who deserves the most pats on the back. Real community is nearly impossible in this world because selfish ambition is part of the fallen human heart. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this? So we're asking, right, 
God is asking us to do something that's nearly impossible. This is nearly impossible to have this kind of real unity and love for each other as long as we've got all that stuff in our heart. You're a threat. You're my competitor. You're a rival. I can't really love you. I can't trust you. I'm out to get you. I want mine and yours too. We're trying to get something to do something that's impossible. Trying to get people to do something that's impossible. How do we do it? There are two approaches, two main approaches. If you need someone to do something that's impossible, the first approach is tell them what they should do. If you need to get someone to do something that's impossible, tell them what they should do. If you're a moralist, you tell them to outperform everybody else. Tell them to show that they're the biggest pig. Moralism says, make a list of what good people do and you do more of it. I want you to do this nearly impossible thing of of really loving people. So let's make a list of how we show love and and you you go at it. And you, you, do, you be more loving than anybody else. And make sure other people see you being loving. Because the heartbeat of moralism is outperforming everybody else. If you're a humanist, you're going to tell people what they should do. You're going to take a different approach. You're going to say, tell people to live up to their own values. If there's a God out there who has values for us, we don't know it. And we could never know those values with any clarity or certainty. Um, So we have to kind of create our own value system. And we need to do this nearly impossible thing of creating real loving community. So let's live by our values. Let's let's do that. We, We can do it. Try to get people to do an impossible thing. You tell them what they should do. The gospel is so different. And this is why the word joy can appear so much in a letter like Philippians. There is joy because in our circles, following Jesus, you want someone to do an impossible thing. You do not tell them what to do. The first thing you do, you tell them what God has done. You see how that works even in this text? Hey, guys, I want you to live in a way that multiplies this encouragement, this comfort, the affection and sympathy for one another. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in accord, agreement with each other. Don't act out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Make every pig's looking around going, are all the pigs eating well? Because I will give up my time at the feeder if you need more time at the feeder. Pigs don't live that way. Human beings don't live that way. So what do we do about it? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or another way to translate that which you saw in Christ Jesus. And then we tell the story of what God has done. 
You want to get people to do something that's impossible? You tell them what God has done. What was Jesus like? Well, let's find out. What has God the Son done? He has surrendered his honor for our good. Listen to the two main verbs that describe what Jesus did. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but now Jesus did two things to himself. First, he made himself nothing. Some translations say he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, that really should be translated slave. We'll talk about that later. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he, here's the second main verb, he humbled himself. What two things did Jesus do to himself? He emptied himself, he made himself nothing, and he humbled himself. Humbled is not a strong enough translation, partly because the Christian tradition has so shaped the uh, Western values that we now think being humble is a good thing. If you were a first century Roman living in Philippi, you did not think being humble was a good thing. You would hear this verb and you would go, he humiliated himself. Nobody wants to be humiliated. You want to be humble, I know you do, but you don't want to be humiliated. That's what this language means. Jesus surrendered his honor for our good. Did he empty himself of being God? No. That's impossible. If you can stop being God, you weren't God in the first place. Like, right? By definition? If I'm immortal and I'm able to stop being immortal, then I wasn't really immortal in the first place, right? You you can't stop being God if you're God. So what does this mean that Jesus emptied himself and humiliated himself? There's the language here of appearance and reality. Um, that, That if you could see this person in this moment, you would have no doubt that this is who they really are. Appearance, what do you see? Reality, who are they really? And so there's this story here of Jesus. And starting from eternity past, existing as as the Son of God. He was in the form of God. That is language about what you can see. If you had been able to see Jesus before he was born as a human being in this world, you would have had no doubt that he was equal to God in every way. He was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God something to grasp and hang on to and cling to. It's my turn at the feeder, and I'm going to stay here as long as I want. He gladly let go, not of being God, but of having the kind of appearance that would make everyone go the moment they saw him. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity, I have no doubt. 
and instead he took on another form. Verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave. Now, again, this is a challenge for us. We're accustomed to hearing this, this uh, word translated as servant. And we think, oh, yeah, of course. Everybody in this room wants to be humble. And everybody in this room would take it as a compliment if someone said, you are such a servant. But this, these are words written in Greek for a first century Roman audience. And the word is not servant. There are six other words for that. There's one word for slave. That's the word that's here. And the point is this. He took on a form that if you had been standing at the foot of the cross, you would have had no doubt that Jesus is subhuman. That he doesn't even belong to breathe the same air you do. That he's a traitor to the Roman Empire and he deserves condemnation that he is a traitor to the Jewish religion, and he deserves to be under God's curse. Deuteronomy says anybody who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So when this text tells us that Jesus took on that form, not, not merely born in the likeness of a human being, but becoming obedient to the point of death, verse 8 says, even death on a cross if you had seen Jesus before he came into this world and added human nature to his divine nature, if you had seen him before that, you would have had no doubt he is the son of God. He is equal to God. But he emptied himself of that outward glory in such a way that if you had stood at the foot of the cross, you would have said, he is nothing but a common criminal who deserves to be stripped naked and beaten and thoroughly humiliated before he dies. If he's, a, if he's a noble, honorable person, we kill him as Roman citizens die, beheading with a sword. No torture beforehand. But crucifixion was all about demonstrating this person doesn't deserve to share this planet with us. This person is a living tool, a slave, and we can dispose of him however we please. And Jesus surrendered his outward glory in such a way that for our good, he was willing to be considered less than human. The creator of all things being spat on and mistreated and looked at as though he doesn't deserve to walk on the, on, on the planet that he himself made. He did that. Why? Well, out of obedience to his father, verse 8 says, he humbled himself, humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He obeyed his father, and he did it for our redemption. So now, now that we know what God the Son has done, we can start to talk about what we should do in response to what he has done. We should be ready to surrender our honor for the good of other people, 
also. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I was reading a, a book by Corrie ten Boom, a Dutch woman who, along with members of her family during World War II, uh, hid many Jewish people in her home and engaged in lots of activities uh, to make sure that, that more than the few who could fit in their home, hundreds of people were spared from the Nazi regime in her home country of Holland. And um, while she was in prison, she was called in to meet with a Nazi guard, one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting. And this, was, this man was very thoughtful and deep and reflective. He asked her some pretty serious questions. And, and part of their conversation, uh, he, he was trying to trick her into talking about all these illegal activities she'd been engaged in so that he would have reason to condemn her, condemn her to death. So uh, tell me about your activities, you know, hoping she would slip up and say, well, you know, we have been stealing food ration cards from Nazi headquarters to pass them out so people won't starve. But she didn't do that. She said, oh, you must be asking about my ministry to mentally handicapped people. So she started telling him all about it, you know, just... And, um, and at some point, this guard said, uh, what kind of religion is this that you are following? Uh, don't you realize that one normal person is worth all of the handicapped people in the world? He wasn't that kind and gracious in what he said. He said halfwits. One normal person is worth all the halfwits in the world. You hear that? big pig mentality, right? There are some people who deserve to get to the feeder and stay there and eat and eat and eat everybody else's because they don't matter. They don't matter as much. And this Dutch woman, she's in her 50s when all of this is happening. Um, she says, you know, in, in the Bible, I learned that God doesn't value us because we're strong or because we're smart. He values us because he made us. And in his eyes, one of these people that I include in worship services in my home every week may be worth more than me, a watchmaker, or even than you a lieutenant in the Nazi army. Do you see what's happening in that story is not simply, it is a woman being incredibly brave in a tense moment, but it also is echoing the story of Jesus because she was being invited in that moment to identify with the strong people, the people who really matter, the people who are significant, the people who would win the contest. If you had stood in that room and looked at the two of them, this starving, emaciated Dutch woman whose hair is falling out and this well-fed, strong Nazi soldier with all of these ribbons, you would have known which one of them was the important one. And don't you think that in a situation like that, you, you try to move over to this side and begin to 
enjoy some of that. And she says instead, I'd, I'd rather stand over here with the people that the Nazi regime thinks are less than human. They don't matter. And I'll stand there just because God made them. And if I have to stay in prison and if I have to keep starving, and if my hair keeps falling out, I will do it. Why would this woman act like that? Because every day her dad, by this time in his 80s, would sit down and read from the scriptures a chapter. Each day, working her way through the scriptures. And she had come to see that there's a story about a God who will lay aside his honor for the good of other people even if it meant appearing like one who is less than human. That is what God the Son has done. There's more to the story, though. If we read what God the Son has done, we read verse 6. Before he became a human, and he, he, he set aside this glory, and, and then he, he became human. He took on human flesh and was born in our likeness. And, and then he humiliated himself and became obedient to death on the cross. And then God the Father did something. What has God the Father done? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, Jesus did two things to himself. And in, in Greek, this is really fun to read because it just jumps off the page the verbs and the pronouns and the way they work, and you see the main core of the sentence structure. Jesus did two things to himself. He, he emptied himself and he humiliated himself. And then you read God did two things to him. He highly exalted him, reversing his humiliation. And he gave him the name that is above every other name, reversing that emptying of glory. So that if you stood before Jesus now, you would have no doubt that he deserves what verses 10 and 11 say. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father shared honor and glory with the Son. Now, that is against every expectation of Roman culture. Great rulers don't help the competition. Right? <laughs> if somebody is a threat to your throne and they're having a bad day, you don't help them get back up. You keep them down. And here is God the Father with an opportunity, at least according to this Roman honor, shame thinking, man, that pig is sick. <laughs> He's dying. I get all the food. I'm not going to help it. And what does the Father do? He highly exalts him and gives him the name above every name. What, what's that name? It's the name Lord in verse 11. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
No. It's not supposed to be that way according to our culture and all these pressures to, to be the best and be the greatest and show that you matter more and show that you have all the ribbons on your chest and show that you're never going to starve because you're going to do whatever it takes to stay at the feeder longer than everybody else because you matter more than they do. And here comes this story about a father who loves his son so much that he doesn't see him as a competitor. He doesn't see him as a rival. A father who is so invested in what is good for his son that he reverses all the shame of the cross through the glory of the resurrection. And he not only exalts him, he super exalts him, the text says. He highly exalts him. This is also against every expectation of the Jewish community. Because if you read the scriptures, you know that God doesn't share his glory with another. He doesn't share his glory with any creature. The creator alone deserves to be worshipped, not creatures. And if you want a really strong emphasis on that, you read Isaiah 40 through 45. Those chapters talk about the, the silliness of worshipping idols and, and building a god out of a stick of wood or a, a pile of stones. And how God refuses to share his glory as creator with something that's part of creation. And then at the climax of all of that, Isaiah writes these words. This is the Lord God speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. You hear Paul echoing that when he talks about in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Turn to me and be saved. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, he says, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. It won't come back to me without accomplishing what I'm declaring right now. And then he says the words that Paul is quoting here in Philippians chapter 2. He says, to me every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall swear allegiance to me because there is no other God. I will not share my glory with another. And yet, here's the Apostle Paul saying, if I, if, if I worship a stick of wood, God's going to be offended. If I worship a statue or a pile of stones, God's going to be offended. But if I worship Jesus, God the Father will be glorified. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Wait a minute. I thought the Old Testament said that it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, that every knee would bow before. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Wait, I thought, I thought we were confessing that to the one true God. To the glory of God the Father. Do you see what's happening? There's a kind of unity, a kind of love shared between the Father and the Son. They're, they're distinct enough from one another that you can talk about one as the Father and one as the Son. But they're at, 
they're, they're unified with one another in such a way that when you worship one, you're, you're worshiping the other. There is no competition. There is no rivalry. There is no contest between the Father and the Son. You know, Jesus is not trying to shove his way into the feeder and saying, they sang more songs about me today than about you. And is the Holy Spirit jealous because he got left out of this passage altogether? No! Do you see what's happening? We're getting here a picture of what it looks like when people love one another in such a way that they're willing to share honor and glory. So what the son did was to surrender his honor for our good. And what the father did was to share his honor and glory with the son. And which one of those patterns ought to characterize our lives together? And the answer is both. Both. Jesus is absolutely unique. No one will ever swear allegiance to you in a way that brings glory to God. Every knee will not bow before you or me. You will never be that big a pig. Right? So Jesus is unique, but there's a pattern here that's supposed to shape our life together where we start to say, as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are, united in such a way that they don't view one another as threats or competitors or rivals. They're not keeping score about whose work in the history of the universe is more important. They're working together. The Father loves it when the Son is worshipped. The Son loves it when the Father is obeyed. Can we become the kind of people who are like that, where we delight to give honor to one another, where I am just as pleased when someone else praises you as I would be if they had praised me? Selfish ambition doesn't like that. But Jesus can change us and make us this kind of people where, where we, we are delighted You ever been in one of those situations where a lot of people had to work together to accomplish a, a goal, a mission? And, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of Oscar speech time. And it's time to give out the thanks for how the, how the mission got accomplished. And, um, and the person giving the speech says, I know I'm going to leave some people out. I know I won't remember to thank everybody. So I brought this long list. Thanks to mom and dad. Thanks to... You know, thanks, 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 thanks. And the feeling you have when you're one of those people that did get forgotten, your name did get left off the list. And that sense of, man, it took so many of us working together to make this happen. And it feels like my contribution just didn't matter as much as everybody else's. That hurts. Imagine being sharing the kind of unity with one another that our first thought wouldn't be I'm disappointed that I got left off the list but our first thought would be I'm so glad that everyone else got mentioned because we're in this together rather than we're in this together why did I get left out we're in this together so I didn't get left out because you got included that's a radically different way of being and living that's impossible. And that's why we have to say the only way for us to become people like that 
to have a community like that, we have to tell the story of what God has done. And that's where joy comes in again. We can do the impossible because God has done the unthinkable. I, I can't imagine having the kind of glory and power that Jesus did before he took on human flesh and blood. And if I had that kind of glory and power, would I ever let it be hidden? I don't think I would. Heck, I don't even let little things get hidden. If, if I run a fast mile one week, Patrick and Tricia are gonna hear about it at dinner, right? Big whoop, who cares? You're still old, right? Would I let that kind of glory, would I give that up? He has done the unthinkable. And if the only other person in the universe who could rightfully say they deserve to be worshiped was down and out, like crucified down and out, would I say, I don't mind sharing my honor and glory. I don't mind highly exalting this person that the world says is subhuman. It gives me joy to highly exalt this one whom I love so much. We can do the impossible because God has done the unthinkable. We aren't doomed to failure. We aren't doomed to be controlled by selfish ambition. We aren't doomed to fracture and division. And we are not asked to do the impossible on our own, out of our own resources. We are set free to be a new kind of people, a new kind, each of us individually, a new kind of person, and together a new kind of community. We are set free because of what God has done for us through his son. Let's give thanks to him for that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have shared together perfect unity and love and joy since before the world was created. Sometimes we think of that doctrine of the Trinity as just kind of, um, well, Christians made it up to confuse other people. Theologians made it up because they like to sound smarter than everybody else. But it isn't true. We didn't make this up. It's too confusing for us to have invented it. And it's too beautiful for us to have conceived. That you would love one another so much, that you would possess so much power and glory and not use it from a heart of competition or rivalry keeping score among one another, but Father, Son, and Spirit always loving each other. Shape us to be like you. By the mercy of Jesus, we pray. Amen.